Hey everybody, uh, this is the, I guess, first full episode since our unplanned hiatus. Um, this time we have with us a special guest, uh, Zan from the Spirakin Movie and Manga Review, uh, to talk about film noir with particular emphasis on three films being the Maltese Falcon, Strange on a Train from 1951, and the more recent film, uh, Brick. You can check us out at www.allgeeksconsidered.com. You can check me out on Twitter at VinnieAvAGC. You can check out DM at DM underscore AGC. And you can follow Zan at, at Spirakin. S-P-I-R-A-K-E-N. Um, I'll also put up a link to his website in the show notes. Um, if you are going to CloverCon in Bridgewater, New Jersey on May 19th, I will be giving a panel uh, about, not about, but just showing some cool anime openers. Um, I will also be at Anime Boston a week after that doing a panel called Ponies. I'm not going to exactly say what I'll be doing during that panel, but it should be interesting. Um, one more note, there were some sound issues because we recorded this over Skype, so if there are missing words here and there, or, uh, you know, noise, um, that is from that. Hopefully you're able to listen still. Geeks Considered Podcast. Um, this time, we're talking about film noir, and to do that, I brought on a special guest. Why don't you introduce yourself, special guest? <laughs> hey guys, it's Zan from the Spark and Manga Review, uh, www.sparkin.com, also does the Spark and Movie Review, Spark and Game Review, Con Review, and I'll be hosting an Insane Manga Challenge at a con near you, hopefully. So, how's everyone doing today? Tonight. Pretty good. Reasonably well. Mm, that's good. And it's an interesting topic. We picked the uh, uh, film noir. Oh, I've so been looking forward to film noir. I think we need to do this one again after this episode. Because there are so many good examples of film noir. And really only we only picked sort of three tokens of noir. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least two tokens. And, like, I don't know how many people have actually seen Brick, considering how indie it was. I feel like it's got a big enough following, and I'm sure Looper helped it out a lot. Yeah, I suppose like his his later fame really helped people go back to earlier stuff. Yeah, but in any case, yeah. well, we'll save that for the uh, brick portion of the episode. Sure. So, yeah. why don't you introduce what our films were? Okay, the, the films we'll be discussing this week are the 1941 uh, version of the Maltese Falcon, directed by John Huston. The 19 51 film Strange on a Train, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and the already mentioned 2005 film Brick, directed by Rion Johnson. All right. And I guess that'll be All right. order for a discussion. Sure. Before we start, did we want to talk a little bit about um, film noir in general? I, I think we have to, because it is an important enough 
discussion. We've had, like, it seems like we've been planning this one for over a month now, and we've had so many discussions on what exactly Noir is, with no real conclusion. I mean, do you, I mean, there's so much aspects which make film noir. I mean, you have that visual style with the the dark light contrasts. You have the whole setup, which is almost a it's a mystery which almost guaranteed to have that twist in the end and then you have the typical femme fatale the hard-nosed main character and you have the twist with some of the with the protagonist either they're some there's something wrong with them in some sort of way they're broken they're broken and they're most of the time it seems like at best they're anti-heroes they don't, none of them really seem to have a morally white um mm. point of reference I, I think that's actually the biggest to me the biggest definition of film noir actually is that there is a moral ambiguity in what's happening and that's what sure. sets it apart from the, the earlier gangster films that those are definitely not good guys and then they always 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 because that is the rules of film at the time literally were the rules they were always caught and always in jail mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the other thing to- is these oh, sorry go, go ahead I was just saying something else is that they're that film noirs are always, for some reason, there's never really a happy ending. They're generally pessimistic, and it's the hero isn't going to get the girl yeah. nine times out of ten. It also seems to me that any time the hero does something that you would quote-unquote call good, such as making sure police have captured a killer, they're never really doing it for that purpose. They're doing it more as akin to... Well, if I'm not doing, you know, if I don't feed someone to the police, the police are going to get me. It's always very self-serving for their goals. Even the, and we'll get to him, even the main character, uh, Guy Haynes in Strangers on a Train, he's probably the most morally white individual on here, but even he really just seems to like, he just wants himself out of trouble. Anything else is gravy. And he breaks pretty far. Absolutely. You know, a white morality. But so, so that seems to be like one of the things I noticed. Vinny, you mentioned something that I, I kind of liked, where like we had talked about like the rules of film noir, and what did you compare it to? Um, a Chinese food menu is my is my uh, recurring t- uh, analogy. I want to hear this theory. How, how uh, so? Huh? When you when you order Chinese food, this is you get you know pick two things from column B, three things from column C. And that kind of thing. People like to make rules for genres and films, and film noir is no exception. But a problem arises because it was no studio, when these films were made, thought of film noir as a genre. And the, the, the term has been applied after all of these films were made. It's a French term by French Bilberg in the 60s. And generally the latest film noir is made in the late 50s of the traditional period. And so people come up with all these rules of, you know, there's got to be this light and dark visual contrast. Um, they, they, you know, every, there's millions of rules you can read online. No list, no, there's no consistency in these lists. What I see is that you sort of, if you have, let's say there are 12 rules. If something has, like, say, seven of them, then it, you know, can be counted as film noir. It's sort of my bad analogy of what film noir is. Okay. Okay, so what are your, the seven, so what would you say are the seven consistence? Rules. No, oh, I, I I made up those numbers, but for me it is the, the you know the big one for me is moral ambiguity. Oh, so, but what are your rules? Okay. Okay, so my, my the big one I have to say is uh, moral ambiguity in the character is sort of the first big thing. Um, there has to be some sort of crime element 
not necessarily done by the main character. He could be involved in it in some way. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, I, I can see where it is because certain films, like um, trying to think of a good, like all three of these films had a crime in some in one way or another. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, of anything I see a film noir, you, I can't. None of them really have. I don't have that. It's honestly, it's a subset of thriller films in a lot in almost every way. They just sort of you know what little things that make it specifically noir. I mean, there is sub. There's definitely subsets or things that tend more to noir, like hard boiled is. is so linked to noir, as we'll see. Here's a question. Um, something that just occurred to me. Each of the characters, of the main characters in these films, had something of a Gal Friday. Uh, uh, an assistant who was helping them do all the little legwork. Do you think that's something that a lot of noir films have? Is it something that would be considered a rule, or was it just happenstance? Uh, that might be happenstance. I mean, I've been reading up a little bit on this, and for me, one of the big things is, a, is more the visual style, almost, that it either has to have, you know, expressionist elements in it, and sort of the, the you know, shadows and mirrors and, you know, playing with, uh, you know, reality in that way, or have an almost documentary-like visual, where, like, where the camera's sort of a neutral observer of what's going on. And I mean, also noir. T- it looks at, like hard boiled on one end, and then the other big side is like, an average guy kind of film, which which I guess we're using as Strange on the Train is our average guy type film. Yeah. Okay. Now, what do you think about the fact that a lot of film noirs start in media's res? They, it's there's no info dump really about the main character. It's generally just throwing in and okay, we know this. We know he's this occupation, and that's it. We don't know any other real. We don't get a real vibe. And, as it builds up, if that makes sense. I I actually I don't if that if that is a rule in noir, then I think it's probably a rule in other things too. Just because I think it's a good storytelling technique to drop you into the film and not give you a chance to like not make you not get you slowly into it, not make you get drawn into it. You're just you're in the film and it pulls your attention right away. Well, I, th- I think what Zan is bringing up, and I'm. I'm... I might be wrong here, but there are a lot of film noir where, like, the the first scene is also the last scene, or the first scene is him in jail, you know, on death row. Or it's him over over the body, and then it's like, how did it come to this point? And then the voiceover goes back, which is a constant in all film noir. You're going to have that voiceover, with the exception of some of the neo noir stuff, but you have that voiceover, which tells you the story of what's going on. Well, I think that does a good job of setting up a sense of tension that, like, no matter what happens in this film, you know that this character, no matter how high he starts, and it is almost always a male character, especially in traditional noir, that he will fall to this level by the end. That, you know, he will become a murderer, or he will be murdered, or, you know. If you see him on his, you know, as he's dying with a stab wound in the first scene, like, that, that gives you a sense of, you know, things are never going to get good in this film, but for him. Yeah goes back to that pessimistic view of this character that no matter how good he may seem or if you're rooting for him it's not going to probably end well yeah yeah and uh it the way it evo- noir no evolved from the 40s to the 60s to what is currently considered noir it's kind of fascinating really i mean you go from films like what was uh besides um maltese falcon which i'm thick is the quintessential we can agree 
That's something to, called hard-boiled, yeah. Yeah, we go from that to the 60s, where we have films like Cape Fear, which is arguably a film noir film, and Stray Dog, which was a Kurosawa film. It goes forward to the 60s, where you got The Long Goodbye, that goes further into the 90s with Basic Instincts and Fight Club. And you can even say Big Lebowski's a film noir, a little bit. I can, <laughs> More comedy, but... I can see that. I mean, definitely Coen Brothers would, could, you know, they, if one person got it, people could pull it off. They could pull off a comedy noir. That's both noir yeah. and comedy. And then present with Brick, you know? Yeah, Brick. And this, honestly, I saw a good one. Um, it's in theaters now called New World. It's a Korean thriller. That's a good, a really good like, noir thriller type film. I'd, I'd highly recommend that one if this podcast is out and the film is still out. Someone said, uh, what is that movie? Not, uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of it. I'll, I'll remember it later. <laughs> Brain not working right now. I'm tired. And you can also go with the sci-fi noir stuff like, of course, Blade Runner and Minority Report or even Ghost in the Shell, you could say. Yeah. I mean, I think it's almost like a filter you put on a film now, you know, more than a genre itself. And this is that Diego brought up a little earlier before the show. Do you still there, Diego? I'm here. Okay. Yeah, I was just commenting on the the idea that, I'll, like, there's an argument between whether film noir is actually a genre or film noir is just a, a type of overlay for any film, like you were saying, science fiction, film noir, um, and then I don't know what other genres that that it was readily applied to, but we've talked about thrillers and I can easily mm-hmm. see, um, I've, I think I'm pretty sure I've seen some like more horror movies, film noir. Yeah. I, I feel like I see like horror and film noir. It, it can only work with certain, like some subsets. I mean, I can't say like a noir rom-com. No, but I could see like a dramatic romance film noir. Yes. Oh, definitely a dramatic romance. I could, that I, I'd be totally down for a dramatic romance film noir. But I, I, I can't, but it doesn't do comedy too well. No, like you said, yeah. it would take a very special brain. Like I said, I think only the Coen brothers could pull that off as like a comedy noir double. Yeah, the only other film I could think of is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was based on film noir, you know? It's the yeah. only two, two which you could count. The rest, not really. <laughs> that failed horribly. Like that movie Fatal Instinct with Armand Asante. Sadly, I'm the, it's a terrible movie from... The only reason why I know it is Armando Sante lives by my house. So it's like had to I looked up some of his movies and you know, it's a terrible, terrible You movie. did that just walk walking in the street. How dare you just slap him? Hey, I tried getting him to say I am the law for, for my dread podcast. He said, Get the fuck away from me. <laughs> Please don't <laughs> hurt me anymore. <laughs> I've made mistakes. Forgive me. I won't forgive you for making that movie about I am the law. Hey, at this point, we've recovered. We've got a good Dread movie that no one yes. saw, but we have a good Dread movie. I saw it twice in theaters, yet it still did not make the amount it needs to have a sequel, which is sad. It made it in England, but apparently that doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Well, England it f- doesn't matter that much. Well, the, the problem is licensing fees. That it's an American <laughs> film, so that like, the American studio gets like almost none of the money from those English t- ticket sales. Mm-hmm. The same with John Carter. would have you know had like three sequels if it, based on the Russian sales. Mm, yes, but us ig- ignorant Americans, we just we don't, we don't, we don't want know John Carter. I mean, like those are both good films, twenty twelve that have not done well enough here. Well, that's a that's another argument for another day, especially considering John Carter and the advertising and 
blah blah blah. Uh, this is this is a whole story of why John Carter failed. Yes, that fails. Yet a movie like Movie Forty Three gets a shitload of money, and I tried watching that movie and I actually walked out. Uh, but again, that's another story for another day. <laughs> um, so why don't why don't we start with the Maltese Falcon now that we've had a nice uh, introduction into film noir tangent? Okay. okay, so this is interestingly enough, even though it's the first film noir by some measures, it is in fact a remake. Yeah, the first one was thirty one, right? Yeah, yeah, and I ca- I can't find that copy anywhere. Yeah, I'd, I, I'd like to see it just to, because. Mm-hmm. So what's the basic sure. story? Let's, let's, let's actually go into like what happens in the Maltese Falcon. Mm. Well, it starts off with two partners who uh, who are at their office, and like most film noir, a, a mysterious dame shows up with a job looking for her sister. Yes, you gotta well, love the mysterious. Mysteriously dame. lives in this in. San Francisco. Could not remember the city there for a second. Yeah. So, so like most good noir, like most major noir, this is set in a city. Yes. And, and the sit and with a... Was it... Did it start with a, uh, a voiceover? I, no. Or was I, it I just... I them? think that kind of came in later on. It's, yeah, it's, I'm trying to remember. The first shot was really him at his desk rolling a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the girl, uh, Effie, says, uh, there's someone looking for you. He says something. I think it was. Uh, uh, she's a knockout. Yeah. Yeah. It's like his. Yeah. Typical sexual misogyny at its best in film noir. This is where it came from. This is this is where misogyny really. This is where like, American misogyny is almost codified. How we how we imagine it. Well, it's that same that Sam Spade character who because uh, he was written by. Uh, Forgot the okay. book that he was from, but he's it's, it, uh, he's been. In, oh, it, sorry. I think there's a few short stories that he's in, but the I think the only novel he's in is Maltese Falcon. But there are some short stories by Dashiell Hammett that yeah. he was in before this. Yeah, Not and he's in three films with just with uh, with uh, Humphrey Bogart, and then like four other films. I just don't know what they are. I should have wrote it down. <laughs> uh, Wikipedia. Not has prepared. It. He was in a few in the uh, Wikipedia. 70s. They're like, yeah, like three in the 70s, Curse of the Jade Falcon in 2008, hmm. uh, one in 45. I think the only, the only one he's Humphrey Bogart in is, you're thinking of um, Philip Marlowe, actually, who is another character played by Humphrey Bogart, based on Raymond Chandler's. There are two, yeah, there are two separate uh, Humphrey Bogart hard-boiled detectives. Oh, oh, that's, that's right, that's right. Never yeah. mind. Mixing ups. It's, it's entirely understandable, though, because I mean, they're both Humphrey Bogart, really. They really are. And that's who you're yeah, watching. It's, it's like when you watch Sean Connery in a film. You're not watching whatever character he's playing. You're watching Sean Connery play a Russian sub-commander, or Sean Connery play a Egyptian Spaniard. I think that's why no one ever talks about the accent in Hunt for October that much. Because it's, it's just, you're watching Sean Connery. Yeah. Okay, he's, sure, yes. he's Lithuanian or whatever. He's Sean Connery. Yeah, he, it's just he's Sean Connery. Go with it. He's an anthropomorphic dragon. Go with it. But um, the one, the one thing I ne- like, the one thing about the Maltese Falcon, I had never seen it before. My only exposure to film noir was in Brick before we started this, and I watched I watched the Maltese Falcon, and I was just I was in love. It was such a great movie. Bogart played it's, it so well. Mm. 
he does and it was it's arguably his best film and it just it is a good introductory into film noir because it has all the elements you need it has you know the mysterious figures the constant double crosses back and forth and back and forth even our protagonist the anti-hero double crosses someone at some point yeah it's it's definitely the basic film noir hard-boiled i i i want to take a diversion to sort of define what hard-boiled is before i use it not it's like what the fuck is hard-boiled like an egg well it's it's yeah. it's, it's a it's a movie with chow young fat <laughs> Hard World's a, a movement in, in detective fiction that sort of comes after the Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes era, where your detective is this morally ambiguous character, things are darker. It's the detective version of film noir, film noir really, what it comes down to. Yeah. But I just want to make sure that people know what that is Yeah. before using it too often. Yeah. But the, the one, th- I loved how throughout the whole thing... No matter how bad things looked for Sam Spade, there was always this sense about him where he's like, nope, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. He always was in control of his environment, even when it didn't seem like he was. Yeah, yeah and he, he seemed almost like he was prepared for almost anything, which was good. He's a bit, yeah, he is that, like, not Batman level of knowing what the hell's going on. Proto-Batman. Then he would always use, like, no, you, you knew some things he couldn't necessarily expect to happen, but whatever did happen, he's like, and this is how that's going to fold into my plan. So yeah. there was no real sense of surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only one-ups they got from him was when he got, uh, when the the fat man uh, poisoned his drink. I think that was the only thing he really wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. Is there anything I, else? Oh, sorry. And even that wasn't really like a downfall for him. He just kind of rolled with it. Yeah, I mean, he didn't know it was happening, but he he's competent enough to be able to go, okay, now I know who I'm dealing with. I mean, first thing he does when he wakes up is search the entire place, because they left him alone. And you're like, okay, yeah. let's yeah. search for clues. I'd be more worried because Peter Laurie was there. <laughs> I'm always worried. I mean, if Peter Laurie's on screen, I, I'm, I'm under the covers, because that's he's the most terrifying man in film. He's one of the best villains in film, though. <laughs> oh, he is. I mean, he, he the thing before this, he was known for was playing a child predator. Like, that's his breakout role in uh, in M. That's I've right. Never, I've never noticeably seen him in things, but he's always, he's he's got such a spooky demeanor. And I've that voice. Oh, oh, yeah. When he gets fat, like, that's when you kind of stop fearing him, because he's just a pudgy little guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. But yeah, yeah, Peter Lorre plays the henchman in this film, which I guess is what he's de- always doomed to do. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean, like I said, I don't, I can't specifically recall films that I've seen him in. But I know I've seen him in films, and he's he's the servant. Yeah, yeah, he's he's always the he's the Renfield to whoever the villain's Dracula is. Very well put. Yes, and that brings us to who is our Dracula in this film? Mm, that that's the question. Because <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, we um, statute of limitations with this film because it came out in forty one. Oh yeah, we're spoiled. Yeah, really... <laughs> I, I think that even if you know the spoilers. With this one, you're not losing too much. No, you still have to see this movie. Yeah, this is this I think is the one in this in this set that you have to see, and the other ones are should sees. Yeah. So, okay, but yeah, so you could say the villain is either going to be, of course, you're going to say it's going to be their Mary Astor. It's mm-hmm. going to be Sydney Greenstreet, or actually, yeah, it's either it's, it's one, one or the other. Two. I mean, yeah, it really. Or is there no someone one else missing? There is. I think that's it. There's the the muscle for the other muscle for uh, Sydney Greenstreet, Casper Gutman, but really that that. Sydney Greenstreet is the big bad. Uh, Cassie, yeah, Cassie yeah. and not yeah. Miles really is, or Wilmer, I should say, is isn't the the dangerous one. He's right. the one that they just sell out. They're like saying, yeah. "Yeah, I need someone to go to jail." So just okay, muscle b- b- boss. That was brilliant, and he was 
<laughs> is there always a character in these type of movies that gets angry really easily? Because <laughs> that was him. I think it's a character you, it's good to put in. Yeah, it's good to have that ig- ignorant muscle who's just kind of... The, the big dumb guy. You're a big dumb yeah, guy. And I, I, I love Goodman's line of, I love you like a son, but a son is replaceable. There is only one Maltese Falcon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just, just totally willing to like kill whoever he needs to get this this, this MacGuffin. Which is and then the MacGuffin isn't even right, and you're like, okay, <laughs> back to <Hey>. Istanbul. <laughs> yes, I've got to keep hunting for this. There is only one. They they take it so well, too. Like, uh, well, want to go back? <laughs> I think this isn't the first time this happened, though. That's why I'm like, eh, okay, we got another henchman. We'll go over this all over again. Yeah, I mean, it could have been hunting for this for 17 years. This is like only like one try out of many that he's you know failed at. But the thing is, you think that if when he gets it, you think he's really going to be satisfied? I mean, he's devoted his entire life to find this thing. I think more he's into the chase of it. Really, it's an unattainable goal. And if he gets it, he's going to be like a dog with a car. He's not going to know what to do with it. He's like, yeah. okay, well, I killed a bunch of people. I have the Maltese Falcon. Now what? I'll well, take scary, a wolf. Maybe the scary it. part is um is being like you don't want to be his partner when you, you finally find it. Because because he won't know what to do with it, he's just going to go to the next line of inquiry, which is kill all these people I have to share it with. I mean, mm. what, what are you going to do with this ancient artifact? Show people. That is, Yeah, exactly. You can, you can just show people off. I've spent 25 years of my life, and I'm as an old man starting out then, to get <laughs> this thing. I can't sell it because it's stolen goods, and everyone in the, everyone in the world knows what it is. You know what this is. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but well, maybe it is just his. Oh, go on. Uh, like the, the the one thing that I noticed, like the Maltese Falcon, there were no real legal authorities that we knew about looking for it. It was considered lost, so it wasn't really necessarily stolen. It belonged to the museum. The okay, Indiana Jones belongs to the museum. Okay, with a bit of Indiana Jones just showed up in this film. <laughs> <laughs> that that's about right. I mean, it's a little late. But it could fit in the Indiana Jones like canon. Yeah, it could. It belongs uh, in a museum. <laughs> and blink, fan fiction is out there. That's, it's probably already out there. Like, uh, and then you know, Sam Spade and Indiana Jones are sleeping with each other. Rule thirty-four. <laughs> rule thirty-four. It is mentioned. It exists. Mm. Go on, Tumblr. Do it. <laughs> do it hard. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. There's um, a character who we really haven't mentioned too much yet. Mm, we've mentioned her. We mentioned her. We mentioned Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Uh-huh. I don't think we've gone into her a lot. And she is. She again. She. We've kind of mentioned that she is the one of the people who could be the big bad in this film. But we haven't really mentioned what she does throughout the story. Or hmm. the role. Everybody. Hmm. That's what she does. She, yeah. She she bounces left and right and left, and she constantly changes her name. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it depends on what she needs at the time. She, she's definitely a career criminal, mm-hmm. which they make clear in the film that, like, she is... She's actually Gutman's sometimes friend, sometimes enemy. Mm. She's a... I think she's the proto-Fujiko Mine? Yes. Maybe? Oh, she, I can see that. I mean, I mean Fujiko's definitely in the, the history of femme fatales. Yeah, but she's, like, the prototype of it. Yeah. Which isn't just right yet, because she does mess up at the ending. She doesn't get away with it. If she did, then she would have been the perfect... Yeah. 
Yeah, because he just he lays it out to her and says, you know, no, no more of this innocent crap. Tell me the truth, and then and her disbelief at the end. Spoilers that you know he, she's like, no, no, you know, she thinks he'll let her go, and he's like, nope. <laughs> I love that concept where she's like, come on, you you love me, and he's like, yeah, maybe I don't know, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I could love you, but I I am loyal to my partner. I know that wasn't it. <laughs> That is definitely an element, though, of noir and hardboiled, though. There is, like, this unspoken, like, brotherhood loyalty, almost, in these characters. You know, it is a bros before hoes world in film noir. See, I kind of... I don't know. I felt, like, more along the lines of it was me before everyone else. I could see see both ways, because it is bros before hoes, but Sam Spade is kind of a me first, then everyone else. Like, when Archer died, he's like... Okay, my buddy's dead, and I didn't kill him because I didn't want to be with his creepy widow. <laughs> well, in the book, they had an affair with each other. Like they, those two characters had had an had an affair. Well, it was inferred in the movie that they did. Yeah, it, it implies, and that's yeah. why she thinks that that he killed. She thinks he killed uh, Archer, so Archer. She, yeah, so she could have him. And it's like, uh, okay, Gladys George, Mary Astor, Gladys George. No. I don't know. That's just and, me. <laughs> but never his secretary. The secretary is a non-sexual creature, essentially. Although yes, she's the... Gr- oh, she's the on. money penny in this film, in, in some ways. Well, like I said, this is this this roots down to my, my Girl Friday kind of element. What? Like, you know, she's his Girl Friday, and okay. then in the next movie there's a Girl Friday, and then there's a Boy Friday in the third one. <laughs> Yeah, it's the it's the assistant who pines over the main character almost. Who's mm-hmm. you know, it, it, but the main character, it's like you said, she's a non-entity. You know, it's it's uh, I hate to say it, going Harry Potter route, but the Hermione, like you know, oh she's a girl, oh she's a girl. I didn't know that. I forgot that fact. She's like kind yeah, of a girl, but yeah, she she's that she's that female friend in the in the group of, of guys. Yeah, she's the one that is like, oh no, yeah, you're a, oh oh oh, you're sure you're a girl? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, look at look at Katie over there, her teacher hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but in any case, yeah, I I felt that she played the role well, but she 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 was just a little too weak for my taste. We're talking about Mary Astor. We're talking about Mary Astor. Yeah. Okay. Bridget O'Shaughnessy. She was just a little too weak, and I, maybe that's just an aspect of the time period. Mm. Would you have wanted her more? If the film ended the same way as the movie does. Cause what? I, I, I think. What? Oh, sorry, the film is the same way the book does. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, words. I, I don't because this ending seems like he ends up a, like Sanskrit ends a little more clean than the film was going. If if you noticed that, I think that he might have had a little more of a gray ending where he had taken the fake falcon. I don't know. I didn't read the book. I know. I, I read it years ago. And I'm trying to remember, but you know, he, the, the Hayes Code was in effect. So anyone who does bad has to. I, I guess um when comparing my. Uh... That we only, I think we only really have two femme fatales in our trilogy of movies. When comparing my femme fatales, I, I did like the the brick femme fatale better. She had a bit of more machination involved. There was definitely a, a sense of intelligence about her that I didn't necessarily get from Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Yeah, and she was more calculating, I think. Yes, definitely. Oh yeah, the, the uh, in Brick, the what's her name is more calculating than. I feel like Bridget is there for the fun of it, not necessarily for the. She's she's not the smart. She's not the brain in the in her operation. She, yeah, she's more an opportunist. Like she's she's not like 
the criminal mastermind, but she's like, okay, how can I work this angle? Yeah. Meanwhile, the one from Brick is more, she's, she's the chess master. Yeah. I guess yeah. in, in that way, both femme fatales kind of mirror the the protagonists. Because, you know, if Bridget O'Shaughnessy, she sees, she's an opportunist. She sees, you know, a situation happens and she does her best to make it fit into her plans. Whereas, um, and Brick, Laura Dannon, you know, works off, like, works a lot like Brendan Fry, where, you know, he's just, he's got a plan, he's working through it, and he does, he does play a lot of people, and she does the same thing. Hmm. That's, a thought. That's, a, that's a way I never thought about it. It actually does make sense that the femme fatale would be the mirror opposite of the of the protagonist, of the, the typical hard-boiled character. The only thing, you know, we see is that Bridget O'Shaughnessy really, you know, she's obviously not Sam Spade's equal in this movie. There is no equal to Sam Spade. He's just the man called Spade. <laughs> and that came out way wrong, because that could be taken in a really wrong turn. Eh. Yeah. we do. we roll. <laughs> uh, mm. uh, anything yeah. That we, want, that we want to bring we need to bring up on this one um besides the filmography is really well done for its time yeah no i think i actually think thank you for bringing that up because there's definitely not to say there yeah it's and got the, the i love the way they do like the shadows i think is the big one of the big things that this film works with works for it yeah because that's the staple to film noir is most of it is in the shadows most of it is at night and it adds to it yeah hmm. I mean, I mean I, the other thing that you notice a lot in this one is there's a lot of low-angle shots, which are also a staple of film noir, but I, I wonder if that was done in this film because Humphrey Bogart isn't a tall individual. It's like five, and they wanted to make him taller, or appear taller. So I, he, he was the main character. I guess my point of view on it, I thought they put the low-angle shots in to make it feel more like like I, as the viewer, was, was in the room. Like I was observing these events as opposed to having a more distant feeling to it. Like those low angled close shots really made you feel more part of the environment. They do. And it's one of those, like it works really well, but I think the reason they did it was not as a directorial flourish, but honestly as a way to make the actor look tall. Yeah, that's very possible. And itself has become a staple of film noir. I mean, I'm always a fan of like things that work really yeah. well unintentionally. Yeah. yeah. I I would be interested. Like it'd be it'd be great to actually know. <laughs> I know in other films they like put Humphrey Bogart like on a box or something. Shots. Didn't they do the same thing for Tom Cruise? Yeah, he's such a yeah. tiny man. So, like, yeah. Same, you know, both you know, short actors who have embarrassing leads. How embarrassing is that? Like I'm, I'm afraid we're going to need to get on the box. But then again, Tom Cruise is no Humphrey Bogart. No. No. He, he wants to be. Like, he definitely wants to be Humphrey Bogart. And I will say, as much as I, I hate him, he, he's a talented actor. But but no, he is no Humphrey Bogart. Um, at least I heard in the new movie, the last one he did, he owns his shortness. Uh, uh, that's well, what I've heard. I haven't, I haven't seen that. I want to. I want, I want to see Jack Reacher. Okay, that's I, what it was. I was trying to figure that out. I just, no, I gave up on him. I just, I, I haven't watched anything since Last Samurai. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's been a while. I mean, I tried watching War of the Worlds, and I was like, okay, Don't. this is a shitty version of the original one and the remake and the other remake, so no. Huh. Yeah, I just kind of ended up in a lot of bad films and also happened to be insane <laughs> yeah. for that same time period. Once you add those two things together, I could understand that whole Last Samurai bow out. Yeah, even though that wasn't a bad film, though. <laughs> it's, 
it's it's weird. It's you take him, you focus on Ken Watanabe. It's a good. But anyway, this isn't the, this isn't that. This is <laughs> Phil Noah. And I I think we're ready to move on to Strangers on a Train. Is that is that I, close I think to correct? Sputtered through this. Yeah. Well, I thought that was Thor Mom from the Train. <laughs> no, wait, same movie, kind of. <laughs> is, is is that our film noir with comedy? <laughs> Actually, that would be the, the the remake of Strangers on a Train with uh, the mom from Goonies. You know, I never, like, I never watched that movie. The Goonies? Yes. No, I've never seen The Goonies. What's that like? I don't know. It could, it could happen. I had never seen Strangers on a Train. It came out when I was too young, and I was not allowed to watch it. Wait, you never saw Strangers on a Train? Oh, you mean, or you mean Throw no. Mom from a Train? Throw Mom on a Train from a Train. No, I've seen Strangers on a Train. <laughs> okay, because it'd be like... Here you Wikipedia art. Wait. It took, me two view- it took me two viewings to actually like it, though. It, it did, I did not do well with it my first viewing. It's not Hitchcock's strongest film by any means, but it's no. a good film. I needed to watch it the second time to start appreciating how it really was film noir. Because it doesn't uh, necessarily, like like you were saying earlier, it doesn't at first glance feel like Strangers on a Train belongs in tonight's um, uh, uh, stream of films. Yeah, I uh, that's what I was. I agree. It's it's it seems out of place a little bit, but there is that touch of film noir. It's a, it's like a brushing of it. Oh. And uh, sorry, I was just thinking one of the things that I, you notice about film noir is that the, um, your protagonist has it becomes more and more a victim of events until he's not. Uh, and in this case, in that case, um, you know. Things keep on happening and escalating, and it seems like the character is out of control of things until he manages to recoup it all in the end. And in that way, I think Strangers on a Train definitely earns its ranks in it, uh, film noir. It's def- I, I think it, I agree that it is film noir. It's just it's. I want to say it's in the core canon, though. I think it's just what you said, like Stranger, you know, strange, like a good man in the wrong situation kind of film noir, as opposed yeah. to hard-boiled detective, which is, this is not. No, this is not a hard-boiled detective film, but it's, I mean, I think that it's kind of almost become the essential concept of film noir now, that we've kind of forgotten about the sad sack, or, you know, man lost in the story kind of film noir. Yeah, the person, the the ordinary person in the extra, extraordinary situation, which escalates. Um, but was it just me, or did... Farley Granger really not seem like a film noir protagonist at first, just the way he acted. Early Absolutely. On, yeah, no, he's... Well, the thing is, he's not a sad sack guy. He is a tennis star. That's really, like... I mean, if he had been, like, a someone else, like, if he had been a lower-level character, it's... That's sort of, I think, the, one of the things that kind of goes, like, you know, straight against it is film noir. Well, see, I, that's what I love about this movie, though, is you have Farley Granger playing Guy Haynes... And he takes you into it, and you're you're with him. So your point of view is a lot different. Like you know, I came into this thinking film noir, but at the start, it didn't feel like film noir. Just it, I didn't know what it felt like. And in that way, Guy Haynes is ideal because until the situ- until the floor drops out from underneath him, and it really you enter your full gear film noir. You know, he's the perfect person, and he does transform. Yeah. When the need arises, he is the character who's you know has the big fall. 
yeah, the per- shows that perfection is not exactly what it is. Because he had the perfect life, even though his wife was an utter drunken, vulgar bitch. She was hilarious. I loved her. Oh, oh, Laura, Laura Elliott was like the standout in this uh, in this movie because she was borderline really stupid when it was like, "Hey, this guy's talking about murdering in front of you." I don't understand. I think my favorite part is I was reading more details on the film, and Laura Elliott she wears these glasses. And apparently she was forced to wear these glasses and they were prescription glasses and she couldn't see anything. And even in the far away shot, she was forced to wear them. So there are certain scenes where she'll be walking and her hand is on a rail or a counter next to her. And that is so she doesn't walk into something or lose track of where she is because she can't see anything. I thought that I was hilarious. I don't have to rewatch this to see that. Apparently, Hitchcock was very much a uh, tyrant in terms of those little details. I mean, I think we've heard that that's one of those big Hitchcock things. That, like, he is a, he is one of those like, perfectionist directors in a lot of ways. Well, I think that's also one of the things I feel this. One of the reasons I feel this is such a weak film noir, weak Hitchcock film is you have Anne Morton, who's played by Ruth Roman, who's the romantic, like the person Guy Haynes wants to be with the senator's daughter. And she's just she's just not a strong player in this movie. No. And she's not someone that Hitchcock wanted. The movie studio had her under contract, and they're like, this is your star. And he was not happy about that, but apparently there was nothing he could do about it. And I think it shows. Yeah, she didn't have as much screen time as any other main romantic leave would have had in one of the in a film noir film she was kind of just i don't want to say scenery well scenery would work she seemed to be in fact her little sister was more part of this film than she was yeah yeah no, definitely and that by the way now that we're now that i mentioned her little sister gal friday and does definitely seem to have a little bit of a thing for guy haynes our main character uh, she would have been a better match i think <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you guys think about uh, Bruno as as the antagonist? Fucking brilliant! I, I, I loved him. He was he was my favorite part of this whole film. No, oh, he was my second favorite part of this whole film. My favorite part of the film is the out of control carousel at the end. Yeah, he yeah. was scary as hell, and he, he he and his mother together were just fucking terrifying. <laughs> He was creepy, like, he was like the stalker guy that you'd see, like, I love when you just see him everywhere, and, and guys just like, you know, playing tennis, he's in the crowd. Walking down the street, he's, it's... there. And you wonder, is, is Guy going crazy, or is he actually that stalker? Well, that, that and, like, um, that's that thing. You can see right at the beginning of the movie, something triggers Guy's spider sense, you know? This guy, he's trying to be nice, but not really engage, we've, engage we've, Bruno, we've, we've but he can't stop it. Here. We forgot the plot. Oh, that's not important. We haven't mentioned what this film is about at all. all Two right, guys meet on a train. <laughs> They're strangers. On a train. Go for it, Vinny. You brought and, it up. And the premise is that is here is they both have someone that if the, if one person in their life was dead, their life would be significantly better. In the case of Guy Haynes... They're coming for someone. Shh. No. He- Stay down, guys. Pew, pew, pew! Oh god! In, in, in the case of Guy Haynes, it's his unfaithful wife. wife it's, his, it's an unfaithful wife who he wants to get a divorce from because he's just unfaithful. To them. They aren't seeing each other anymore, and yada yada yada. In, in the case of Bruno, it is his. He wants to kill his father for money. Yeah, did money. Do they ever really give a legitimate reason, or it's just because of the money? I mean, is it well? The, I think the reason they gave was um, you can tell like more. 
not only does he not like his father, but for one, his father's making him work for money. And for two, you can tell in the scenes with his father that his father is aware that his son is batshit insane. Yeah. I feel like his father wants to get help for his son, and that's why the son wants to kill him. Pretty much. That's the air I got. Yeah. <laughs> I, I stress batshit insane. Then, you know, he's kind of hitting on his mother. Did you love her painting? How creepy was that? I want, I want that on my wall. <laughs> above, next to my picture of Christopher Lee that I have above my bed, I want that next to my bed. Who was that supposed to be? St. Christopher? Uh, St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi. And I love his idea where it was just like, that's dad, right? And it's, no, it's St. Francis. It, it was very reminiscent of, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, of The Scream. Like, just that kind of, like, weird horror it seemed like something that would be in Norman Bates's house, honestly. Totally, but I love, I love like that scene with him and his mother, and you're just like, oh, everything makes sense now. Yes, and you're like, this is creepy. Okay, maybe you should drink some, <laughs> some, uh, uh, what the hell is that stupid uh, poison? Arsenic, and you'll feel much better, uh, Bruno. <laughs> Guy with two first names, isn't that Aww. a serial? That's a Pretty serial nice killer. Bruno Anthony. Well, the, and the middle name. The middle name is the other serial. Like, it was Bruno Lee Anthony, then, yeah, just kill him at birth. Like, just, just end his life there. <laughs> he will kill someone. Yeah. But, no, uh, but, but on so, this train, Bruno suggests that they kill the other person, Chris Cross. Chris Cross. Yes, yes. Yep. And it's his idea. And because. Guy Haynes is a nice tennis star who really isn't subjected to the more horrible parts of reality or society. He's just like, that's that's really nice. Uh, thanks for coming by. Yeah, which, whatever. Which Bruno takes as, I believe what Bruno heard is, that sounds brilliant, Bruno. You start. I think even if he said no, Bruno would have been like, he said yes. <laughs> well, he said no, but his heart said yes. He, he had to say no. I mean, people might have been listening. <laughs> Yeah, the people who who I hear my voice were listening in my head were in my head were listening. <laughs> I mean, nowadays I could see someone like um, what the hell's his name? Uh, well, Anthony Perkins playing this. Well, he's dead, but Anthony Perkins playing this character, or just you Steve know, Steve Buscema. Yeah, Steve. Oh Buscema. God! Oh God! I don't want that. That's too creepy. It's too too creepy. <laughs> but tell or me, he, he could nail that. He could. Or but Robin he, Williams. Robin Williams plays a great psycho. Yeah. But the thing that work here is that Rob Warner had this, like, very clean... Like, he looks clean-cut. He's got a suave look to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dapper. I would yeah, call him Dapper. Yeah, yeah. Dapper. That's, that's the yep. perfect word for it. That, like, you wouldn't assume this man's insane. He's, he's clean-cut and he's white. He's clearly a good person. <laughs> wow. Okay, then. It's the 50s. That's how you think. But, it's, okay, it's so... A, go ahead. No, no, no. I was agreeing. But, um, so... So he takes it as an affirmative, and he goes and takes care of uh, Guy's problem, Miriam, which is a, a, a brilliant stalking scene. And apparently the scene where he strangles Miriam is, like, studied. And it, it was shot something like on two different um, film prints and then, like, kind of merged. What, I've heard rumors that this was similar to another one of Hitchcock's films where it was a general reaction where they didn't say it was happening, you know, they didn't tell, it's like, you know, they literally did it, like, start strangling. She didn't know she was going to get strangled? 
I hadn't heard that. Well, I don't know. Like, I, I know that they said um, that the rumor was that that happened in Psycho, but it was like pretty much debunked by most people involved. Like, well, it was. Yeah, but I hadn't heard that for this one, but I'd kind of believe that's, that Hitchcock was capable of that. I haven't read that. I mean, I look at the IMDb trivia, and usually that's going to be anywhere. That was from one of the Hitchcock documentaries I've seen. Like uh, I forgot which one it was, because Hitchcock, the other one, talked about that, the one with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, decent movie. It's not the best, but it's a decent movie. That's what I've heard about the uh, The other one which came out was a lot better, though. Uh, Hitchcock? Yeah, yeah. I, I just saw that recently. It was it was really good. Yeah, um, but um, but that's uh, well, where the trouble begins for for Guy Haynes. Yeah. Also, doesn't help that he left his cigarette lighter behind. Oh yeah, he he oh, left yeah. it on the train. That's the last important. Well, yeah. Guy lets Bruno borrow his cigarette lighter, and it's not just any cigarette lighter. It is one that is clearly engraved, so that you know. It is Guy Haynes' cigarette lighter. And do you love that that idea that goes on in Bruno's mind where he picks up the lighter, goes to the door, opens it halfway, looks at the lighter, and then just thinks the better of it and just pockets it? Well, it was a pretty pretty snazzy lighter for the 40s or 50s. I'd buy that if he didn't make such a production of After Murdering Miriam of looking at it on the ground near her body and Almost leaving it. Well, I think he knows if he leaves it there, that that will immediately lead it back to Guy. And he he, he needs Guy to kill his father. Mm. He also Good. may have been t- thinking to, to screw over Guy also. That's what he I thinks. was thinking. Yeah. 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 But, but like, he, I th- he goes back on that. He's like, no, 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 no. Crisscross. I, I did his murder. He has to do my murder now. Exactly. <laughs> I think he eventually, the saner part of him and the end scope that is Bruno... Goes well. We still need to do that other murder. Yeah. Once that's done, then I can go back and do this and say I saw him. Not yeah, realizing. Not realizing there was a witness. Right. Kind of. And then you, that that's kind of what puts you on this whole. It puts Guy Haynes on this train of his world falling apart because you got Bruno here stalking him every which way, demanding that he commit this murder. You have other people going. We. We heard you talk about how you wanted to kill her, dude. You said, put it on the phone. I want to strangle her, strangle her, strangle her. Yeah, like like the senator's daughter, who's his love interest, is like, you told me you wanted to kill her. Although, yeah. who wouldn't? Like, let's be honest here, who wouldn't? It's kind she, of those if in court, like, who in this room doesn't want to kill that woman? Everyone raises their hand. She was really horrible, and I, I think she played it so well. Oh, she was a shrill little... <laughs> Bitch. She was obviously going to have a gangbang that night with the two guys on that island. Like that was really their plan. Like that was going to be some DP action. And I think there. honestly, I think that's what she was looking at Bruno for. Is maybe he could add a third to the party. Hey, he could have killed her after that, though. He could have had some fun. He didn't think of that, but maybe. He, well, he is crazy, so he's like. Well, it's not his mom, so I, I really think that there's an Oedipus complex there going on with him and the mom. Yeah, yeah, I think he would have been disgusted by it. Oh, it's not my mother. What's the point of this? <laughs> oh, maybe if I put a wig on her. <laughs> I wasn't born from this hole. Why would I sleep? Why would I do that? Why would I not go back? I didn't realize that the younger sister was actually uh, Hitchcock's daughter. That poor, poor daughter. <laughs> oh, the the problem she must have now, like talking to a therapist. Well, Daddy may be in this film where I had to have a man try and strangle me. And then Daddy may be in a film... <laughs> 
She did a lot of guest spots on his films. Yeah. yeah. But but in any case, yes. Back to back to the back to the gang gang. Oh wait, no. <laughs> no, we're we're past the gaming. We're now at the uh hmm Hang after he was it um Oh he's stalking Guy Haynes. Yeah, because, yeah. Because, because Guy says, What are you talking about? I said, No, you're insane, I'm not murdering anyone. I said tee hee, let's kill them. Not let's kill them. Ha ha <laughs> <laughs> difference here people he yes. was pretty, I think he was pretty clear that he really didn't want to be part of it all jokes aside he, yeah he was like that's, that's a fine idea you do that <laughs> and, and then when Bruno finally realized that guy isn't going to do it he's like the most incompetent like okay I'm going to now frame you and then everything that goes wrong can go wrong it's like someone came out and was like okay we're going to tie shoelaces together <laughs> we're gonna make it. We're gonna make him drop the the lighter. Then we're gonna put a banana peel that'll slip on. It's like everything that could go wrong did go wrong for Bruno. Bruno, yeah, Bruno was not fated to do to carry this over well. <laughs> right down to the stupid like dropping the lighter down a street grate. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he developed his first mutant power at that point. <laughs> yes, lighter pickup ability. <laughs> No, like, Finally, I like, can stretch my arm a little bit. Like, clear, clearly he couldn't reach the lighter, but apparently if he works at it for, like, an hour <laughs> with, like, a dozen people just standing around <laughs> and watching. Hey, at least something wasn't in the in the sewer drain ripped his arm off. That would have been a cool film. That would have been a really good that's, Yeah, that's, we're taking a U-turn and getting off on a different crazy film at that point. <laughs> and now my robot arm! <laughs> Oh god, that's a, it's Killer that's a, Croc. That's a Kazuo Koike level of no, not Kazuo Koike, that's a actually yeah, it would be Kazuo Koike uh twist. His arm gets ripped off by a tentacle creature, so he gets a bionic arm. <laughs> you thought you thought that Bruno Anthony was bad before. <laughs> now meet Mecha Bruno. <laughs> yes. Um go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just slapping at this now because I'm just picturing like a Mad Bull 34 level of insanity with Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> Look at Bruno Anthony. He smells like piss and coffee. <laughs> In any case, um, it's, it's worth mentioning that one of Bruno's forays takes him to the senator's party where yes, he, gets, yeah, he, he gets to he, start hobnobbing. Yeah, he, he kind of like mingles into that family pretty quickly. And I guess because he's rich, he can just do that and just talk to a senator like it's nobody. He's very charming. He is. No, he's totally a nice, charming guy. And like, uh, it's it's just amazing like how easily like the senator just like lets him into his house. Well, he's rich, bitch. He's got money. Oh, you're a lobbyist. Please bribe me now. <laughs> he just he just walks in, takes out a wad of bills, smacks him across the face. He's like, "Okay, come in. Here's a wad of cash. Let me into your fancy party. I'm not crazy." Yeah, but his dad never gives him any money. <laughs> Maybe he flashed a lighter. <laughs> Didn't my daughter give up to my daughter's non-boyfriend? Yeah, like, well, and I love how the senators are right with that whole thing. Well, it's so much a married man, but he's a good married man. See, the only but, reason he got away with that is because the internet didn't exist. Well, no, he, he makes very clear during the party that, like, uh, we kind of was getting out to the tabloids. Next thing to know is because they're having orgies here. Not they're having orgies here. Don't tell anyone to have orgies here. Oh, God. TMZ, back in the 50s. <laughs> or, orgy, orgy happening in Senator Morton's house. 
Seeing famous uh, tennis star Guy Haynes enter in. Wonder what's going on with him. He's married, folks. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, if it went that far, I'm sure that, that pictures of her and his wife's various orgies would be everywhere. There'd be several sex tapes out. <laughs> it, it, it seems like an open secret that, like, he's married but dating the senator's daughter. I think they all know that she's a horrible, horrible shrew. <laughs> and apparently that makes it okay. Like, Of course it makes it okay. That would have been an interesting twist if they all were like, "Okay, you, you murdered him. It's okay. You murdered her. It's okay. We'll cover for you. We didn't like her anyway." <laughs> oh, you murdered her. Here's a medal. It's like I didn't murder her though. Oh, okay. Oh, we understand completely. You didn't murder okay, her. You didn't murder her. Okay. And the only time oh. they tap out is when they have he has the lighter for proof and like, oh, well, we can't help you out. <laughs> it's like, oh, so it was Bruno who did it. Ah, well, you're on your own. Bye. <laughs> Oh, but no, so, like, I mean, it continues on, and that's, so we, we have that until the, the crazy Karos, so there's a big chase, and he's gonna, f- when, when Bruno finally figures out that guy isn't going to do the thing, he's like, fine, then you should pay for your murder, I'm gonna frame you for it, I got your lighter, boom, and then we get to the crazy carousel scene. Yes, where the police shoot the carousel operator, which makes it go crazy. What the fuck was that? Why didn't that cop lose a badge? <laughs> Apparently, you know, innocent victims are okay if it's... There is a carousel whirling round and round with children on it, and he's just like, yeah, I think I got the shot. Well, it's a carny. Carnies aren't people. <laughs> but the kids on the carny ride are. <laughs> hey, he's a good enough shot to not kill the kids. <laughs> yeah, he was taking the shot for the guy, and he shot the carny, the kids were fine. Until that boy, like, got flung off. <laughs> you have That kid probably bounced and was like, Wee, Mommy, I want to go again! He yeah, really kid, did look like he was having a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, wouldn't you, like, characters are pretty boring. Like, they always have been. Like, no no one lies about that. They're, like, the most boring one in the world. And then suddenly, like, oh my god, it's going fast and it's really fun? This is the best day ever. Some guy got shot? I love my life. <laughs> he just wouldn't tell that story to his kids. <laughs> I remember back when I was a kid, I saw a man murdered right in front of me. <laughs> but that wasn't the fun it. part. The fun part was the carousel. <laughs> it went crazy. And that, then was, I, that, was, oh. that, that scene was added by, um, amongst other writers, uh, Hitchcock's wife. They threw that in because they thought it would, it would work, and apparently Vinny agrees with them. I agree. It's it's one of the best scenes, memorable. It's the most memorable scene from the film. I mean, it's that. Yeah. It's a nice cl- setting for a climax. You know, it's it's got the it's a, a weird place. I mean, the amusement park. You know, it reminds me a little of Dark Knight Rises, uh, Dark Knight Returns with the Joker, that whole thing. But it's, mm-hmm. I think I think that's where they may have got this. They may have got the inspiration from. But it's a very good. You know, it's a great climax, and I like the fact that. If he didn't have the lighter on him, Bruno would have gotten away with framing Guy. Oh, absolutely. Um, but that you was you should have left it in the storm drain. <laughs> Seriously, like like there might have been there was some level of doubt because the carney was like, no, that's not the guy, but probably not enough. He was probably going down. Got a mistrial, but like it would not have cleared it. It might not have cleared him of it. But I, I would say, like my favorite scene in the whole movie is still the very last scene. Where, you know, everything's all clear, our hero, our protagonist gets to live mostly happily ever after with his, with his girlfriend, <laughs> and they're on a train, and some random, some random priest 
comes in, sits down, says, hey, aren't you that tennis player? And he starts to answer, and he's just like, fuck that noise. <laughs> and he's just tapped. He's like, come on, baby, we're going. I'm going to card next time. Yep. I like the fact that it opens and closes with the same line. It's a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Hey, aren't you? Yes, and uh, it's, what, what type of shit is a clergyman really going to get into in the 50s, honestly? You, uh, you saw, I'm assuming you saw um, Parker. Yeah, it could it could it could have been someone it could have been someone pretending to be a priest. You don't know that it could have been Jason Statham. <laughs> it could have been Rutger Howard from surviving the game as an Orthodox priest. Exactly. I'll no one can be trusted. Guy has become a little less trusting in his experiences. Yeah. <laughs> and and reasonably so, reasonably so. I think so. <laughs> but like we we've we've touched on some of the film noir aspects of it. You know, you have. Man with world falling apart. Um, you do have that um, some good shadowed scenery. The filmography, I thought, I thought Hitchcock did brilliantly. It, it definitely has the, that look of uh, a film noir, mm. but I think it is the ending that makes it the least film noir, though. Absolutely, yeah, because it's, it's got the positive happy ending. That, like, even though he went through all this crap, he still gets what he wants at the end. But I've oh. noticed that amongst. For the most part, not always, but for the most part, Hitchcock tends to do that for his his protagonist. They tend to make it out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even like in The Birds, Rope, North by Northwest, it has that kind of happy ending. Um, Yeah, exactly. That That was my phone. Okay. The only thing that I think isn't, um, like I was trying to think, like Psycho still has like, you know, there's really nothing happy coming out of that film. Norman Bates is okay. He says he's okay. He's his mother. He's not okay. That's fine. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. He's in a safe place, and he'll get out eventually. <laughs> and me- meanwhile, judge. you have the male, I guess, protagonist, for lack of a better word, and the um, the murder victim's sister. Yeah, they've lost someone. Neither one of them are happy. It's not like they're a couple. <laughs> ah, they'll become a couple in their grief. And, I mean, if... No one else if, can understand what's going on, yeah. I think we may be venturing far off the plot. <laughs> oh, yes. But if you wanted to make this more film noir Ian, a word I just made up, if you wanted to make it more of that, if you wanted that ending to have it more, I think if Bruno had killed Anne... Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah. To, mm. ...to make it more, to give him that extra, like... That, that loss, yeah. Or that, even... It, go ahead. No, go on. So even if, like her death or even if it was some sort of plot point where she was just like, you know, I can't marry you because there's just too much um, bad press and drama surrounding this. You know, your, your name's, you know, off limits now. Like if somehow he lost her in some way. Or if he lost everything in that line, aren't you, it was like, weren't you famous once? Right. Where he like, lost everything. That yeah. I could see like, that would be like, yeah, he's, he's coming out of this two spit shine and, Bristol fashion here. Like he, honestly, he's, he's better off now. Like his his, his wife is dead. Like, mm-hmm. Let's be honest here. Oh yeah, no he, question. He's not in jail, and he's and he's with the senator's daughter. Which again brings back our point of um, moral grayness. Because you know he got everything he wanted, and all it took was a little murder and a patsy. Yeah. <laughs> Admittedly, it wasn't really his patsy, but looking but at it from a different a angle, it could have been. I mean, if you want to take it on that angle, what if the whole thing was that Guy actually was the mastermind? Not if Guy was the villain of the piece. 
Oh, poor Bruno. Would you, wow. would, <laughs> you want to see a version where it's from Bruno's point of view? Like, okay, here's the plan. I need to, I need to find a crazy guy, get him to kill my ex and my wife, he's gotta then be, make sure I... I'll say I'll kill someone, but I won't actually do that. And he's got to be incredibly insane. Not run-of-the-mill crazy. We need to find insane, but no one will put him away for it. Okay, a rich guy who's crazy. There you go, a rich guy who's crazy. Where's Howard? <laughs> yeah, not crazy like the bum on the street or that guy who's ranting that the world's going to end. We need someone who's generally crazy, maybe with an Oedipal complex. Brilliant. A rich person I'll just make, And then I'll research and make sure I meet him on the train, and I'll make sure he walks into my train compartment. I know, we're, we're onto something here. We this need can't fall apart. It's perfect. <laughs> we should write this down and sell this to, to Touchstone, or wait, it don't exist anymore, to some company. Maybe uh, Lionsgate. <laughs> Lionsgate, like, Film District could pull us off, I think. But, but looking at it from a different point of angle... You can really see Bruno as a patsy. <laughs> Maybe Bruno feels like a patsy. Like he feels like he was used. Guy got everything he possibly wanted. In fact, if you look at it a little more deeply, that last tennis game was reportedly the best tennis game Guy had had in years, and may have boosted his tennis career. <laughs> so he's gone from amateur to pro. He's got the girls. His, his, his enemy is dead. His wife is dead. And he's not pinned on any of it. Yeah. You could probably... They're probably on their honeymoon for all we know. He got everything he wanted and got away spot clean. So, just saying moral ambiguity. <laughs> Until the sequel and Bruno comes back from the dead. Mecha Ugh. Bruno. <laughs> yes, Mecha Bruno. Mecha zombie Bruno. Robot Mecha... mecha. Oh, Mecha Robot Zombie Bruno. Brain Mark ass two. Ass <laughs> Mark one failed. Well, you don't want to see what happened to Mark one. We kill me. We don't mention them. <laughs> Please kill me. Oh. So were there were there any other points we wanted to to make about uh, strangers on a train? Mm. Now, comparatively, you think that um, Bruno was better or worse than? the villain in we'll say Gutman and Wilmer. <laughs> um I don't it's hard to compare them, but I will say that Bruno was infinitely more terrifying. Yes. Bruno had like a secret window into Guy's life and he could take everything away from him. The only thing that Gutman could do was kill him. Sam Spade. I mean Goodman just kind of wanted the thing. Like he would he he'd go to lengths to it, but like Bruno is yeah, exactly he's rel- he's 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 relentless He's he's there, and he could take your life away, yeah, not just kill nuts. you. He could ruin your life. He'll break you first and then kill you, or have someone else kill you because of what you've done. I mean, another angle you could have seen it was if if Bruno decided to go the Tom Ripley route and want to take over his life. Yeah, you could easily have seen Bruno like do that. Yeah, like saying you have- he makes indications towards that where he's just like oh i love people like you you create things or you know you're a tennis player you're a person that matters i don't matter maybe he had a job it matter <laughs> i don't think anyone job, would, kid. <laughs> i think everyone any employer would look at bruno and be like you're fucking crazy get out of my office how about i give you tell you a nice shiny quarter <laughs> jesus <laughs> but no i i find bruno much more terrifying to answer your question yeah they're different kinds of villains. That's I think that's the problem. They're very different. Yeah. Um, Gutman just had a goal, and he murder was murder a was inefficient. It was also inefficient. He wasn't going to do it unless he had to. And if he had to, well, whatever. 
And with Bruno, murder was the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To get his money or or his mom or whatever. It. The money and the mom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what happens when his mom rebukes him then? Well, bum, she's bum, bum, bum. Well, then she, can, then, then she can die, too. Ooh, How new, Chris, she... new Chris Cross. <laughs> Part two. <laughs> Okay, I killed I killed your wife and you killed my dad, but now I need to kill my mom. But isn't that why you shut up? I want you to kill my mom and I'll kill She won't sleep with me anymore. I'll kill your wife's new sister. That's right. That's how we'll make this work, but I like her. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. So, so should we move on to the third one? Let, let's let's yeah, so move on to Brick. Let's move on to our third and final film. Alright, so Brick is Brick is a pretty easy description. It's it's very heavily, I didn't realize this until I watched Maltese Falcon, but it's hev- very heavily entrenched into the hard-boiled, like, formulaic film noir. Um, it's basically, the w- way I've described it to people in the past, as Sam Spade. That's a really good description, because it really feels like that. You have analogs of every type of character possible. The police chief, the femme fatale, the, the evil villain, the girl Friday, mm-hmm. but the you have- Minion. Yeah, exactly. So you you have Brendan Fry um, post breakup with his girlfriend, um, and you have the in media res opening of him staring at her dead, and you don't know who she is at the time, and you kind of like backtrace through it, figuring out why they broke up, and he spends the movie not trying to figure out who murdered his girlfriend Emily, but trying to figure out who put Emily in a position to be murdered, because he's like. He says it very poignantly at the end. He's like, the cops could have figured out who murdered her. I want to know who set her up to be murdered. Yeah, and it's it's that mystery which bring which is the culmination of the film. It's why you want to know. And, I mean, that opening sequence is a nice opening where you just see him just staring at her as mm-hmm. she, and when he finds her in the water. And it's just, it's chilling almost. It's, and he almost, I don't want to say it's like he's emotionless, but you don't see him really break until later. Like it, it's almost he's cat not catatonic. Um, oh no, I I know what you're thinking. I just ah, oh, what's the word? He's shocked, and I'm in the mental health profession. Um, he's shocked, maybe. Yeah, he's he's uh, like a kind of PTSD kind of. Yeah, he 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 represses this. He's completely shut off. We'll 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 leave it there. There's no yeah, emotional it, connectivity. Yeah, and it's 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 it's, it's I mean. Emily was well. Did they ever explain how he betrayed Jer? Um, he explains it in the movie. They were they were in a partnership where they were dealing drugs, and because Emily, you don't understand whether like maybe she was starting a relationship with Jer and cheating on him, or somehow she was getting more involved with the drug dealing crowd. So to stop that, he turns on his partner, gives him up to the to the vice principal's assistant and thereby the cops and gets out of the game and she it does not go down how he thought it would go down yeah and he loses everything from that because he just sells him out exactly which is a nice which is nice because he isn't a good person to start off with i mean sam spade is ambiguously you know he's a pi he's neither good nor bad then you have guy who he's i'm upstanding tennis player and this is a, a drug dealer Exactly. He he's a self admitted he he dealt with drugs. So. Yeah, and I'm just trying to think of what else. Um, but yeah, he it. So from there on, he actually goes into he doesn't 
you find out that you got a call from her where she's freaking out. Was it at a payphone? She called him, or it was, was it a payphone? Yeah, and yeah, she was... makes she makes it was a brilliant scene because she calls him and she lets it slip. She's just like, "It's really nice to see you." So that's his. That's one of his first clues because then he's like, "She's looking at me." So he goes out there and he sees. He eventually sees what vantage point she was at. She was in another payphone across the street. Yeah, and she's muttering, begging him for help, and she mentions four words, which are the crux of the movie: Rick, Frisco, Tug, and Pin. And she says a little bit more like gibberish that only after you've seen the movie does it really make sense. But yeah. suitable. But those four words are the, you know, are the MacGuffin. Because, I mean, all these films, if there's another one we have had, Absolutely. there's a MacGuffin to these films. You know, one yeah. of the Falcon, before it was, the, the, the lighter was the MacGuffin in... And, and this, I would say, is the brick. The brick and the words start, you know, the first and then. The brick itself is the, is the, the main MacGuffin. So he basically... Yeah takes it on himself to solve all this stuff and in the deal in the solving of it he crosses a lot of lines where he's just like okay well i'm gonna start working for a drug kingpin and i'm gonna do whatever it takes to figure out what happened to her and to make those people go down yeah and it goes horribly wrong from that way because of well things go really bad and unlike with Sam Spade, he gets, you know, knocked around a little bit, but nothing too physically damaging. Same thing with Guy. Brandon gets the shit get beat out of him. <laughs> not not just that, but is he not a fucking Terminator? I mean, he may get the shit kicked out of him, but anyone he got into a fight with, barring Tug, <laughs> was just, like, ended. He's scrappy, that's what it is. He's that, like... brutal. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the guy who tried to knife him had his collarbone broken at least. <laughs> well, I feel like, 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 especially with like uh, in the first film with Sam Spade, like getting hit beat by by him was kind of it's kind of it's kind of a hit, it hit the face. Like, not only you're beat, but this is a tiny little guy. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt has that same thing going in this film of like he's not big, bulky. He's not like he's not the heavy. He's no, he fights. S- he fights dirty. Yeah. Like the football player who I'm pretty sure he broke the shin of. I think of him like um, from Fight Club, how uh, Edward Norton said that we don't look like we're models. We look like we're carved out of fucking wood. And he's that type of where it's like more, he's a sprawly fighter. He's not the big, burly, you know, the henchman guy. He's the guy that you underestimate. And because of that, he is going to tear you apart. He's an animal. And he's got, there's a style that I really think they like that the, the one point of connection between him and Sam Spade that just struck me most was that for instance, um, when he was getting ready to break Tug's car and then he sees, he's like, Oh shit, there he is walking towards me. So he, he puts down the rock that he was going to smash through the window. He takes his time. He takes off his glasses, puts them in the case, puts them in his pocket and gets ready to take his beating. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a sense of style about him where they're like, well, this is going to happen, so, you know, let's make it good. Well, that's another element we've seen in this, that there's almost an, ex- an existentialist quality of, you know, you're not nece- you're not in control of the You're almost an observer of the world, and what, and what the world does to you is what happens. I mean, in a lot of ways, he machinates things that are happening, but like you're saying, in a lot of ways, he's just kind of our conduit to this world that's self-destructing around him. Like, this was going to fall apart one way or another, and he's just our viewpoint into it. 
I would say he's reactionary, but he's also the catalyst for a lot of situations also. Oh, absolutely. Uh, to the point where he seems to be, even if he doesn't know exactly what our femme fatale is setting up for him, he seems to anticipate it enough to make it work in his favor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no. He, 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 he's, he's, he's smart, he sees the world, but he also understands that he doesn't have total control. On this one, the one thing I notice that differs from some of our earlier noir films is that the bad guys really are lacking where the femme fatale is really your bad guy, and the other people are just kind of props. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, kind of the opposite of Maltese Falcon. In a lot of ways. Because you have the pen, played by Lucas Haas, who's, uh, I don't know how he was crippled, but he was crippled. And you have Tug, who's like, you know, Lucas Haas has, must have the brains, but Tug doesn't have any of them. Mm. And they're, like, Tug is, he works, you know, he's your muscle that we were talking about earlier, your minion, that maybe gets a little above himself. But Lucas Haas is really just, you don't ever get the sense that he's that scary. no. I'd have loved a scene, like, where you see him, like, freak out and just, like, really see, ha- have him cause fear to character. Absolutely, but it seems like Tug is so off the leash that he never lets it get that far. He snaps mm-hmm. well before Lucas, like, the pen could snap. He is the he is the combination of the minion who's gone the route of Bruno. He is yeah. Wilmer and Bruno combined. He's that crazy and methodical, but there's no control behind it. He's not the... He's a, I'm going to beat him up, boss. He's the guy who's, okay, boss said to beat him up. I'm going to make sure that he's eviscerated. Then he's like, he's getting a sense of, well, why am I following this guy who is always reactionary and like I could do what he's doing? So there's that sense of a revolution that, you know, is manipulated. The other thing, though, which I always, which I found, which I found a little weird when I watched it was how come Tug likes, I, I know that. He saved Brandon in order to arrange the meeting, but like when Brandon passes out, you know, he could have just left him there. That was a little, it seemed out of character almost. He wouldn't have seemed. That, I believe, is our femme fatale Laura Dannon's thing. I think she is the voice that's whispering in Tug's ear and saying, Well, there you have a lieutenant. He could be useful. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think Tug is quite smart enough to put together himself. But I do think that we have more than enough evidence to say that Laura is manipulating him. Oh, yeah. And this is yeah. also, this is the only film where the girl Friday, or in this case, Boy Friday, actually dies. Oh, see, I see. I don't view Emily as the girl Friday or Boy Friday. Oh, well, I was like, talking I about think, Dode. Okay, Dode. I always thought of it like a Dode I didn't think of as. I thought... Um, just brain, Matt O'Leary. You know, he's running the operation for him. He's keeping yeah. tabs on people. Oh, yeah. I... That, that, I think that makes the most sense of the... Like, the, he's the support team to the main character. Yeah. He's Dode the... He, he was more... In film, I'm thinking about now, he's more of an informant than anything else. He's the one who had the connection with everything. He knew Emily. He's the one who explained about her being pregnant. And, you know, he was trying to... Well, he f- turns on Brandon halfway through, and that gets him a bullet in the head. Definitely. He was. Um, he, he is that kind of deal, and I think that he and his partner-slash-boss, Kara, are necessary to an extent because Kara provides us um, an alternative femme fatale. Like, to start, he's really trying to push you to Kara being evil and Laura being 
like someone who's you like you know who's willing to work with you maybe she's just you know she's playing up all those strong femme fatale qualities where i'm in over my head and you could help me we could work together and i think kara exists to push you a little in that direction kara was a red herring to begin with she's the one that you thought was the femme fatale and it was a nice touch for that where the actual femme fatale was the person you thought was innocent and i'm thinking about it now and how you said when we talked earlier that you know there were more indicators that laura was the the big bad there was some points which i knew which i'm remembering now which which showed she was the big bad that sound retarded (laughs) edit (laughs) no like it's absolutely correct and that's why i think that i think karen needed to exist just because there are some lines early on like the gibberish that emily gives you over the phone is like she told me what to do with the brick so immediately if you were listening carefully there's a she and emily was instructed about something with the brick so there's only two other women in the whole thing kara and laura so if you were paying attention one of those two people has something to do with this or both of them has something to do with it very likely yeah and so the red herring was like like you said it was it was gray you know she she did her job fairly well cuz you really didn't want to like her. Yeah. Where like Laura Dannon, you know, was she oozed sex. She was, you know, very austere. She played it very carefully, almost demure at times, but very clever. Yeah. But she doesn't well, she doesn't get away with it, or does she? Because the thing is, I don't know. Parmy thought that the whole note in the... Well, actually, no, it wasn't a bluff. Never mind. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a bluff. It was very... Of all the things in the movie, was what struck me most as a mirror to the Maltese Falcon. That that scene at the end. Where she tries yeah. to get away with it? Where, yeah. where he's not going to let her, and she can't believe it. We're like, I thought we had something. How did you? How were you not fooled by my wiles? <laughs> and that, that to me was like a, a just a nice direct mirror to the that end scene where there was like the girl thought there was something there, and the boy was just like, maybe, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. It seems like he almost like could. Oh no, that's. I mean, who who played Laura? I'm trying to see who she was. I mean, could, um, could, uh, that, Nora Zetner. She she was in Heroes for a bit. She's done some other stuff. She was the girl who was in the movie May, right? She was the main. Yeah. She was yeah. the, the main actress in that. I haven't seen it, but I'm looking at the internet, yeah. which says yes. Yeah, because I I have that movie, and I was like, is that her or is she? She was in that movie. I know it's is a terrible she? movie. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> she was she was in that movie. Like I said, she played like the first season of Heroes. She was Eden McCain. Oh, Eden. Yeah, if I if I remember that show anymore, remember I liked it. She was. I don't remember anything else. Her power was convincing people to do what she wanted. Okay. Yeah, she's the one who had the. She was the temptress to Siler. Well, for briefly. Yeah, but she in was any a case, si- Yeah. Um, but she was. Thought, oh, go on. I I think I was going to say the same thing that you were going to say. Maybe, but she she did the role so well. Oh yeah, she was a she's a nice uh, an improvement upon what um, Mary Astor wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. she's Bridget O'Shaughnessy like in the 21st century with that sensibility of you know, having power. Exactly, and that's why I tried like I I thought twice and went a little easier on Bridget O'Shaughnessy because I'm like, well, the time period might have something to do with her role, mm-hmm. whereas in this case, the time period I think has everything to do. With Laura Dannon's role, she was, you know, because she she is empowered and she is 
basically walking circles around most of the other men in this thing. Even like his boy Friday the Brain was just eating eating up everything she had to give. Yeah. She she was manipulating everybody and she did it in such a way where she it, it she made everyone else look like they were amateur amateurs and it was it was impressive. Uh, what do you think about um, Megan Good, though, as the other alternate femme fatale? Um, in terms of being a red herring, I think she was a little over the top. But yeah, I mean, I don't think she's believable, honestly. I never really... And I mean, I, I saw, I'd seen this film before, watching it for this episode. But even then, it was like she, she never seemed like the person who would actually be the villain. But I liked her because of all the characters in this movie... Um, Megan Good playing Kara was the only character that could bring out, bring Brendan Fry out of any shell. Like, she made him angry. No other character broke through his emotional shell like that, except maybe Laura, for a brief moment. I thought they were good, that, uh, again, red herring, I thought he was going to end up, like, hooking up with her because of that, basically hate-fucking her, because she had that ability to get him to react like that. It's Even, possible, but she, she seemed to de- despise her so much that it really, really, really would have been a hate fuck. There was just no way around it. Like, he hated her. Yeah, I mean, out of the there's the two women, well, technically three if you want to include Pim's, Pim's mom, who's just there for comic effect. <laughs> Wait, she's there to remind you that they're high school students. That's, that's her whole purpose in the film. But she that totally was a, knew, right? <laughs> I mean, I think she did. Like, she definitely like knew that her son's a bad person and selling drugs. He paid for that, that whole everything. He had to have. Maybe, yeah. maybe her, maybe his father is, as you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going with this one. He sold nine she, bricks of cocaine. <laughs> I'm thinking Carol, she knew. Well, technically, Carol, eight bricks sorry. and one brick of one brick of uh, what was it? Um, it was Turgent. laced with turpentine. Oh, detergent. Yeah. 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 But in any case, but she was she actually was suitable comic relief though. And again, nothing that struck you as hokey in this movie, at least in my case, took me out of the movie. It just kind of enhanced it. Well, mm-hmm. personally, my MVP was Richard Roundtree. I mean, Shaft as the vice principal. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> he did well. And he was that typical that 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 uh, the chief's up my ass type supervisor type, and I like that. Absolutely. Um, I thought that the cast was really great, honestly. Um, Noah Segan played Dode, and that character of Dode was just like, he was in that role. He was just that weaselly little informant snitch. I'm going to take, like a little rat. Yeah, he did a good, he did another one, he did a great job. Yeah, I, I have no complaints with the acting or anything, any of that, anything on that level. I really have no complaints with the film. Um, interesting note, we were talking about the last scene, and um, the last scene actually had to get filmed a little later, and it was their last day of filming. This film was under an incredible budget, so they ended up, um, like, it's harder to hear them. They had to do some dubbing later, because they had to film it. They were losing light, and there were cars going behind on the overpass, and that was just when they had to do it. So, like, that's Mm. why, like, that scene is, like, a little off. But I think that it's an example of what you were telling, saying earlier, Vincenzo, of we're doing something because we have to do it, but it really works. So they're talking very low and near each other, and there's a sense of intimacy. It's The scene almost seemed like if you – it's it had more of an urgency to it. Like it is that scene where the cops are coming, and he has that moment 
even though that wasn't the case. It, it, if it was any other film, they would have had that police are showing up and she's trying to run away. And it's almost like if he was a pride eye, he would have handcuffed her to keep her from running situation um what what i would say is um the screenplay is based on a novelette written by the same writer ian johnson um he wrote the novelette with the intention of turning it into a screenplay and filming the movie it changes some stuff around that i think actually makes it better for print but it's it's definitely worth worth checking out you can find it online for free i mean he he's not like selling it or anything Actually, I want to see if there is a DVD or a, or a release for this. Hold on. There is. It's been out for a while. Well, I, there's a DVD release. I, that's how I watched it. Yeah, because I only saw it on Netflix, but I want to actually buy this now. No, it's yeah. I I, I, I own the DVD. It exists. Um, there's also some art that went ar- along with the novella. That it's amazing because, uh, as far as I'm aware, the art came out before the movie was filmed, and he knew who he wanted Laura Dannon to be because a lot of the art features her and they, they could be the same person. It, it was, it's, it's quite amazing. So like, really? he, yeah, it was, the, the, this so is like, he, he wanted her to be casted early on. I don't know if he wanted her or if he's like, she has to look like he this. He knew the look going in. Yeah. Like, I think it was more likely like, this is my Laura, and he was just looking for that person. Because she yeah. really had to, she and Joseph Gordon-Levitt were really the ones that were going to be required to make this movie. Everyone else had a little more wiggle room, but those two characters had to be exactly right. They were they were the linchpins for it. If, if either of them had done poorly, this movie wouldn't have worked. They, like Joseph Lauren Gordon-Levitt held this movie together. He is the... This is if you want, if anyone says he's a bad actor, this is the film which you would show to show he's not. Exactly. Who says that? I don't think anyone. Not like, not anymore, but I mean. I mean, like, like the nineties during like Third Rock from the Sun, maybe like. But this is a, this is an interesting thing of the mind of the director, or the writer. Um, he says they say like the during Sundance the movie was one seventeen minutes, and then they cut seven minutes before the theatrical release, including a shot of Laura's naked back as she puts her shirt on after the she and Joshua Gordon-Levitt have sex. And he says he took it out because, and he apparently he still argues with himself whether it was the right move or not, but he felt that the nudity was just not wrong in the context of the film in general. So I, I, find, it, uh, I find it interesting that he was like that exact about it, but not only that, but he still has no idea whether it was right or not. I don't know. I don't, I honestly don't know. What do you guys think about the soundtrack? That's not something we've touched on on any of the other movies, but this movie really seemed to have its own unique soundtrack. I think it does an excellent job of um, enforcing and complementing the needed mood of the film. It adds to the ambiance. That's what it does. And I'm I'm reading here on, on the Wikipedia that apparently the score was composed by the writer's cousin with some additional support by the Cinematic Underground, and it's all been recorded um, on one microphone on the guy's Apple PowerBook using things like the Winophone, Metallophone, Tac Piano, kitchen utensils. I'm going to look at this right now. Because one I mean, of the songs sounded like it was from something else. Like the, the... It, says this, it says it contains songs by the Velvet Underground. Um, yeah, and something that, that, from from Frankie and Johnny. Yeah, I I I really like the soundtrack, and actually I, I may download it later 
because it's 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 a it's it's interesting. It really is. It it adds to that kind of modern film noir style because film noir sound is very distinctive. It's not dark, but it's I don't would contemplate it be a good word. You guys think? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, my go-to for big for for uh, noir sound is Big O, honestly, an- which I think has the the most effective or you know the most definitive. To, sound me, to me, what it did... Noir sound. Okay. Yeah. I guess to me what it did was it, um, in a way, the music struck me as almost Western. And that kind of bringing, that kind of, like, call from the past really enhanced my getting into the atmosphere of this being... It pulled me out of this being a high school movie and into this being some sort of, you know, criminal drama. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I... I, I can definitely it definitely is what moves it from being you know the the a, a weird juxtaposition of high school and murder mystery or murder drama to you know just solidifying that that this this is a drama noir story. Mm-hmm. But it's um, what I it remember. is. No, I was saying it 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 is. It's in the long run, you could put this story and make it adults. It'd be the same. It it would have the same. It wouldn't have the same impact though. No, it's still a drama story, but it's just. Adding that pseudo innocence of them being children at dirties it a little more, and it adds a little more substance to it. I think absolutely. Um, I remember I saw this movie in the theater, and it was not a wide release. So, amongst other things, we got severely lost trying to find the theater that was playing this. But when we went in, one of the things that really struck me and kind of prepared me for what this movie was going to be like was um, the theater. Um, cardboard um, advertisement that they had in front of the uh, theater that was showing the movie had a list of vocabulary and their definitions. And that's one of the things I've had to explain to people who are going to watch this is that you have to look at it like you're going to read Shakespeare because it, if you just let yourself flow into the dialogue, you'll, you'll get caught up in it and you'll start being able to identify what they're talking about. But if you fight it and you try to understand each thing they're saying you're going to get lost and not be able to actually get into the movie because they use a lot of lingo. I don't think it was that hard, it's that hard to figure out, though. Uh, you'd the, you'd the be surprised. Lingo. And I think that you might actually have an edge up considering the kind of things you do watch. It's not, I mean, it's not like NADSAT or Newspeak. It isn't that difficult, but it's a little, if you're not prepared for it, it is a little... It can be, it can throw you off a little bit, but I think that there's enough contact yeah. that you can, should be able to figure it out within... I think so, too, but like I said, some people who are going to try, if you try too hard, you'll you'll miss getting into the movie. Mm. I mean, I know someone like my brother or my father would be like, they'd be completely lost with some of it. Yeah, I mean, I'd never Maybe suggest it's... this my parents, to my parents. My dad's a fan of things like Big Lebowski and Memento, so he might actually like this. Right, yeah, yeah, that's definitely like I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone who likes stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know what else to say about this. I'm trying to think of something else. I don't know that there's much more to say. I mean, it's we've definitely covered it, like not 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 intensely. I haven't done like an academic study on it, but I think we've given a good feel for it. And mm-hmm. there is, you know, I highly recommend it. There is oh. not a movie we've spoken of that I don't recommend seeing once at least. You were saying something, Sam? Yeah. This is something which I just remembered I was thinking about. Um, did either of you guys notice that sometimes when they were talk- talking, I don't know if this was intentional or if it was a mistake, it seemed out of sync? It was out of sync, and I can tell you why in just a second. Um, that was something they they filmed it um, 
He was on a very, very low budget. Okay. And let me see if I can get to this point. Um, he, there were certain edits that were introduced to the film uh, to time footage to different dialogue. And those, those edits became noticeable because the actor's mouths weren't moving in sync with them. Um, is how they explain it. Okay. Um, I mean, on the one hand, it was a little bit um, not not uh, disconcerting or a little bit took me out. But it, added, it made it feel a little dreamlike in those scenes. Almost like it was kind of like his perspective memor- remembering almost. Like, he's, like where he's yeah. trying to recall the memory and it just seems out there where it's like, was that what happened or did something else really happen? He's just superimposing it like he's lying to himself almost. But I, I think honestly what did happen was that he um, he made dialogue edits and it just like he didn't like they were unable to, to go back and cut the film again. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like they couldn't go reshoot, so the lips were just going to be kind of like a little off. But still, I mean, this film won what was it? Six awards or something? Uh, it got it won, it won a good handful of independent awards. So yeah, it's eighty percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, that on hmm? yeah. No, I noticed that, and uh, Metacritic gave it a 72, which is a pretty good review for Metacritic. <laughs> and yeah, like, there's, like, and it had, like, from 2005 to 2007, yeah, it won a, a good, pile a good dozen six. awards. Mm-hmm. One, yeah. two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, no, ten, six, eleven. One and a, oh. Six, one and a half all nominated. Oh, right, 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 yeah, it was, it won six and was nominated in, like, eleven, so. Yeah. I wish I so saw it was, us in theaters. It was really, I'm, I'm glad I did. It's this is the movie that made me start to pay more attention to what independent movies were coming out mm-hmm. because I knew at that point like I could be missing stuff. So like because of this movie I got to see things like Little Miss Sunshine in the theater mm. which I thought was brilliant too but for a different day. Yes, um yeah, unfortunately with me I see movies like Holy Motors and Wrong. <laughs> And the independent action scene is like another thing that people need to learn exists. That's where I think is like the that's again the secret of action movies now is not the big release ones. True. Uh, I was also thinking about like you had said something. Maybe I think maybe it was on a podcast earlier, Vincenzo, where we were talking about how not enough science fiction gets released. But on that scope, I was looking. You know, I was looking through a trailer site, and there's like at least three science fiction movies coming out this year that are more hard science fiction. But, so, like, well, maybe we're seeing a, a regeneration of that. Yeah, but if you notice, all three of the... Oh, no, they're coming. Gotta run. <laughs> uh, again. Everyone get down. Run, Vincenzo, run. Don't let if him take go, you down. If I go down, everyone's going down. Um, it's all been recorded, guys. They know the truth. <laughs> oh, no. But as I was saying, um, if you notice, all three of the... Science film, science sci-fi films coming out are all being starred by Scientologists. Is that? Uh, I don't think that's true. Will Smith, Scientologist. Tom Cruise, Scientologist. Um, what's the last one? I got you on one of them, but it's a more independent science fiction film. It's uh, called Upside Down. Oh. About two worlds that are, I guess. Yes, I know the one you're talking about. I saw I saw the poster for it. That one, okay, okay. That and that's and that, hard sci-fi. It, it's it's with yeah. I mean, it seems like that. I mean, they're talking about the gravity of two planets. You know, it might not take place in space, but I would still argue for its hard sci-fi ness. It just happens to be a romance. Yeah, I mean, 
They always fuck it up somehow. Oh, yeah. Okay. See you in the lows. Hey, at least we're getting Star Trek in the darkness. That, womp, womp. Yeah, but every trailer they put out, they should have just left it at, like, the Super Bowl trailer. Every additional trailer they put out looks worse. Yeah, and also the thing is they should just say, is he con, is he not con? True. I would like <laughs> just, that information. Just say it. Don't leave us in the dark already. I mean... Oh, so huh. here's a fun fact for anyone who has, like, the Apple Trailers app who's listening. On it, if you look deep, they have trailers for E.T. and The Wrath of Khan. And I will now no longer be complaining about any trailers that come out now <laughs> unless they give me the plot completely because those trailers were horrendous. They were Have so you... bad. Uh, and it's sad. If you look at the 70s trailers, like for the B-Har movies, they gave the entire plot in those. And then they stopped for a while. And now they're back to that where they're showing every single little thing. Always, there's a scene from the last scene of the movie in a trailer now. Have you noticed that? Yeah. I have, yeah. But I will say, after having watched those two where they were at the tail end of that, were giving you the plot of the film, and then watching the trailer that came out after the su- at the Super Bowl for Star Trek, Star Trek didn't say shit. That's uh, yeah. That you didn't know what the crap was going on, and I'm like, and I still want to see this movie. This is how you should cut a trailer. Yeah, but see, I, no, we want to see it. It's called Star Trek. That's why we want to see it. I would yeah. want to see it even if it wasn't. It was a well cut trailer. It was. I mean, another trailer that was really well cut, even though the movie arguably failed. Um, not going to get into that because it's for another podcast. Prometheus trailer. Yeah, the movie sucked, but the trailer was well cut. Yeah, I give you that. If the movie wasn't called, considered an alien prequel, it might have been a good movie. I don't know. I think that was the only thing that was saving it. <laughs> but again, for another podcast. Again, yes, for 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 an aliens, Prometheus, or Elysium. Uh, what is or was that other one? Um, the one with the space madness with mm. I don't remember with Dennis Quaid. I forgot it. Uh, I'm not sure. Some horror movie or sci-fi movie. I don't remember. <laughs> I watch too many movies. <laughs> That's no, there's no such thing. No, there's not. And so, boy, what am I watching? Oh, I'm reviewing that. That's right. Um, Terrible. Ter- sorry, going on a little tangent. Apologize. No problem. We do it all the time. But I think that pretty much caps our uh, film noir catalog. And we, we, we scratched just a little bit on the surface, really. Yeah. We should return someday. Uh, I would look forward to it. I had no idea how much I would like the Maltese Falcon. But I really liked it. It's. I'm surprised you, it's the first time you've seen it. You saw it, and it is an excellent film. It's one of the best. It's in the top. It's one of those movies you have to see. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely one of those. You know, film. It's, my problem. When people say film you have to see. They almost dread it because it's a film you have to see. True. We often forget that there's a reason why these films are considered great. Exactly. Well, Oh, also the other problem with After Earth is the director. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, neither of those look really great. Those two definitely, yeah, Scientologists, which I have a problem with. And, and neither one of those films look really daring. One looks to be like a wall of... Pacific Rim. We forgot about Pacific Rim, which is going to be the best film of the year. You're it's, <laughs> it's Mazinger Z with GLaDOS. I'll see that. Yeah, I'll, You'd see an, anything. There's another we'll movie that looks really good. I mean... I know it's going to be a remake of the first film in this trilogy, and the second one was terrible. 
But I, I have hopes up for this movie. Riddick. Oh, they're remaking it? Could be it? good, yeah. It's the third one, and it, it looks like he's back on a planet with... It just went back to the pitch black formula, and it might be good. I mean, I love the character. I love the universe. I love the video game. That second movie was terrible. It also kind of caused me to have car accident, but that's, again, neither here nor there. An odd thing to say about a movie. <laughs> For that film. <laughs> no, 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 no. Afterwards, I was so. I, I After driving home from watching that, I kind of. Well, anyway. Like I said. Pissed me off so bad. <laughs> yeah, one of those. <laughs> Not paying attention, arguing with a friend about why it was good or why it wasn't. And <laughs> so, um, what are we doing next, Vincenzo? Do we know? Uh, yeah, no, we're doing the board game episode now. Oh, that's right, because it's a, we're doing the board game episode, and that's going to be a uh, how to get your friends to play geek games, kind of a gateway game board game episode. Um, what's what's next on your stuff, um, Zan? Okay, next on the Sparkin on www.sparkin.com, we got four episodes hopefully coming up on time. Uh, we're a little behind because my editor, well, he got married, so he's. I'll edit it next week. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, honey. I'll take two weeks later. Get, get fucking on with it. But so I'm. But we're releasing. Hopefully, I'll have Bioshock Infinite finished. So I'll do the game review for that. We have a review with Reanimator with this one of the stars of nice. um, Net, which is a web series. And then we also are doing the manga of the greatest man of all time. The Go go thirteen. Sounds like Woo! I know Vincenzo will be listening. I'm already a listener, so hey, it's Duke. You're, you're, not, you're not getting anyone new. I got a couple people new this week because apparently people like gravitation. There you go. Well, I guess you're not. You're not that's not your core fan base. Oh God, my numbers spiked when that episode came out. It's scary. <laughs> It's like usually 200 people, 200 people, 1,000 people. Like, what the fuck? Yay, boys love. <laughs> uh, oh, probably. God. Oh, uh, well, that and the Dread episode people had a lot of fun with. Well, anytime you do a new... Like, yeah, because we have some new, a lot of new stuff coming out and some new movies that I really want to review. And if you guys want, I'm actually, there's one movie I was thinking you guys want to help me with. Um, did you guys see a little movie starring... What the hell's his name? Uh, uh, star and some guy named Martin Freeman and Ian McKellen. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I caught that. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could talk about that movie, that that first installment of that series. Maybe I don't know. Uh, as, as a sneak preview, I liked it way more than I thought I would. <laughs> I only had one issue with the movie. One issue at the entire movie. The rest was awesome. Good. I, I look forward to talking about it. Definitely. But yeah. Um, so uh, lots of exciting things coming from both our podcasts. Yep. And I, Yay! And I can't wait to hear that board game episode. Wonder what I, games you're going to talk about. I'm looking forward to it. We're, we're still, you know, working on the list. Yeah. But we will, oh, for anyone who's listening before that gets aired, we will take suggestions and any questions that you had. Yes, make us do less work. Oh, I love less work. When you guys do the work for us, you become my favorite people. Uh, the f- the fans and listeners, why we do now, this? If someone would if someone would edit for if someone would edit for us, that's that's the real goal of uh, podcasting. Uh, to get someone else to do the dirty work. Yes. Uh, just do like the people from Atomic Trivia War did. They eventually broke down and paid the person. 
that costs more money. Podcasts already cost money to do. I think they pay them in cheese. I, cheese is delicious. Could I pay them in baked goods? Cheese. I do a mean baked good. Mm. Try it. Go. Cookies, cake, pie, crueler. Mm. I'll pay you with this old sonic screwdriver I have. I'll pay you in bear claws. <laughs> oh. Well, Ugh, it's been a blast. Um, yes, it has. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thank, thank you, you for coming on. No we'll problem. See everyone else next time. You want to close us out, Vinny, with your Twitter spiel? Okay. Um, hey, guys, you can follow us on the internet at www.allgeeksconsidered.com. Go there to subscribe to RSS feeds for, podcast, for podcasts at this point. And <laughs> follow us on Twitter at AGC underscore bloggers. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Vinny Av AGC. Diego, where can you be followed at? DM underscore AGC. Zach, can you be followed on the Twitter? Yes, I can. At Spirekin.com. S-P-R-A-K-E-N. See you guys next time. Woo! <sighs> Sleet. <laughs> ah, yes.
Together now and for 